This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The Pointer Sisters, everybody's a star. Just after four o'clock, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Thanks heaps to Matt for burning vinyl. Thanks to Jane for Music Matters as well. On today's show, we talk to LA-based filmmaker Finn Gray-Paul. At 4.20, Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families will be in the studio with me. And at 4.40, we talk with Jill Faulkner from Queer Space at Drummond Street about their programs for women and LGBTIQ folks who have used violence. Looking at their therapeutic approaches there, joined in the studio by Finn Gray-Paul. They're here for the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. You've got some shorts screening tonight. What's on? And welcome to Australia, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, so tonight there's a program of short films at uh, 6.15 at Acme. And I put this program together in response and conversation to increase trans representation in the mainstream. And I've put this program together to gather works by trans artists who were um, using similar approaches in conversation with representation. So I felt like there were some artists in a moment that were in conversation with elders, um, in conversation with queer texts, and in conversation with what constitutes an archive. And um, I was also not willing to accept um, a desexualized or sanitized version of trans and queer culture at the price of inclusion. And so... There are 11 works, experimental shorts, uh, ranging in the year 1994 to 2018. A huge change, really. I mean, 1994, that's around Silence of the Lambs, isn't it? You know, that was when a big, big change on how trans people are represented in cinema since then. Correct. So there's a documentary about Leslie Feinberg, who wrote Stone Butch Blues, And um, Leslie made that film in collaboration with the filmmaker, Elisa Lebo. And it is a phenomenal representation of a trans person who is proud and embodied and aware. And um, so, yeah, it really goes against what was out there. But I also did not know that film existed and came across it in the process of putting this program together. And to find out that there's 30 minutes of... This of footage of Leslie Feinberg was really mind-blowing to me. So tell us about Leslie for those listeners that may not know much about them. Uh, yeah, so Leslie Feinberg was a writer and an activist, born working class in upstate New York, and wrote a phenomenal, very, very sad book called Stone Butch Blues. Also wrote a book called Transgender Warriors, which uh, when I came across I could not put down in my youth. And um, I want to say passed away about 10 years ago from cancer. So, yeah. and this A doc- trailblazer. Yes, a definite trailblazer, yes. You're from LA. We we're talking about, you know, how the film industry has treated trans people. Do you think that uh, things have got better since the outrage over Scarlett Johansson basically being cast as a trans person and the... Back down from the studio and her 
Uh, are things getting better? Um, that is a complicated question. The industry is really driven by money and profit. I think that it has changed a little bit. I think that there are more trans makers, which I think is probably the most important part. So you have um, Silas Howard, who's directing features. And Silas, he's been in making films since By Hook or By Crook, which is also a trailblazing work of trans visual representation. And um, yeah, I mean, he's been hustling for years and finally broke into the industry um, in a way that he's making a living. I mean, a, a great living. Um, so, I mean, at least the conversation is happening. At least people are fighting back. And um, whether or not there's change coming from their voices, their voices are being heard. So, yeah. Speaking of fighting back, of course, the Trump administration has yeah. not been kind to the trans community. Right. Uh, what's your take on how trans communities in LA are kind of reacting at the moment to his presidency? Uh, what are the lightning rod issues? Right. Well, so um, what you hear about is uh, trans people in the military, which is a um, very complex um, reality of actually the highest employer of trans people in the United States. Um, and one of the few ways that people outside of some states can get access to health care. Um, Is that why so many trans people in America seem to be attracted to the military? Um, no, I don't, I don't know why people are <laughs> attracted to join the military, but you know, economic realities in the United States for working class individuals are really, really limited. And from testimonials uh, by trans people in the military, it's actually been an incredibly safe space to come out. And their um, superiors, I think as they're called, are incredibly accepting. And their Why peers- is that? I mean, it's great. Why is it such a safe space, do you think? Uh... I have no idea. <laughs> is it because perhaps the numbers of trans people who are in the military, it means that it's not a big deal? At I, least for the brass, obviously it is for Trump and you know his supporters. Yeah, I mean I think actually that um, there's so many working class people who are in the army and military uh, because it's one of the few economic opportunities and I think – that they're the reality – to make a sweeping generalization, um, there's a lot of tra- trauma that comes with poverty and a lot of um, – and I think from that trauma comes empathy. And so I assume that um, there's a lot of actual empathy from peers in the army. Now, I have not been in the army and I'm just making assumptions. So, Yeah. When people think of the trans community in LA, yeah. they think of Caitlyn Jenner. Of course, right. uh, Caitlyn's reputation really nosedived with her support of Trump. Has mm. she rehabilitated that reputation at all? Whew. Um, you know, I don't know. I can't um, – I haven't really seen much of Caitlyn Jenner in the news lately. I have some people – I mean, obviously I have with her support of Trump. But as far as um, – Sort of like word on the street, talk of the town. I think when her show came out, um, I had people that were in my community that were on that show. And um, 
you know, there was so, but I haven't, I'm not as involved with the, um, that community. So I don't really, I mean, uh, there was a lot of pushback. There were videos on the internet of, uh, people confronting her in spaces that were amazing. Um, and I guess maybe she has backed down a little bit because I don't feel like I'm seeing her in public in a way that she was before in LA. Has she been good for the trans community, do you think, in any ways? Um, I actually thought that her show was really good. Um, and there were a lot of really great people on that show. And she – I mean she, she brought all these sex workers onto that show and they're sitting around in her mansion in Malibu talking about the realities that trans people face in L.A. And I had never seen anything like that get airtime um, in my entire life outside of maybe like a, a a spectacle talk show like Jerry Springer back in the 90s. So I thought there were things that were really actually groundbreaking about that show. And she spoke to a lot of activists. And I think the producers really knew what they were doing. Um I mean, I do feel like actually there was a moment where things really changed when she came out. And for what it's worth, that's weird. But yeah. Speaking of groundbreaking, you are a filmmaker that's done some groundbreaking work. What is your proudest moment as a filmmaker? Tell us about that film. Um, hmm. I mean, I guess I can just – I don't know if it's my most proud moment as a filmmaker, but I could just speak what to my – your wow moment where you're <laughs> going, I made that wow. <laughs> um, I actually – I guess I would say some of my older films that maybe dealt more with class um, where I really stepped towards things that really scared me. Like what? Um, well, I grew up in an um, upper-class family and I came of age in a queer community that was primarily working class. Are you from L.A.? Yeah, I'm from L.A., born and raised in L.A., and um, and then I moved to Portland, Oregon, and uh, the community there was mostly working class. It was a really affordable city when I was there. Um, I would say it was diverse economically in the way that L.A. queer community doesn't feel the same way, or it feels more um, segregated, I would say. But so anyway, when I was in Portland, Oregon, uh, I made a film that was uh, – confronting being open about my pr class privilege and race privilege. And that was probably the hardest uh, thing I made creatively. I don't show that film. It's really embarrassing, but that Why? Was... Why is it embarrassing? <laughs> um, it's so vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. A lot of emotion there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> Got to go towards it, you know? What about the film that you do show a lot? What's that one where you go, I really want to keep putting that one out there? Um, well, I would say um, that my newest film I'm um, pretty proud of. I think that as far as... The, What's it called? Uh, it's called Beside the Water, uh, 1999 to 2004. It's playing this evening in the program. And um, I think what I'm most proud of about it is actually just uh, the craftship uh, as a filmmaker. I feel like I've matured and – So what's it about? Um, it is um, a somewhat fabricated archival document. I was thinking about what it means to be part of a community with 
few visual examples of a past. And so I wanted to um, make a fake archive. So I used um, old uh, photos of friends and lovers. And then I also shot some footage that looks old, but is I shot it in the past year. And then I used um, the these photographs I'd taken in the desert outside of Los Angeles and made this sort of road trip Western um, sexual discovery, um, sexual encounters, uh, community formation, isolation, uh, the discovery of community, uh, essay film, I guess you would call it. So it sounds like people should definitely rock along to the Queer Film Festival tonight to see that one. Give us the name again. Uh, well, it's playing in the program Desires and Resistance at 6.15 at Acme, and the title of my film is Beside the Water. Now, you're also speaking at a plenary session, I think, on Sunday called Can Love and Sex Change the World, yeah? Correct. Between 2 and 3 at Federation Square. What might you be saying at that session? Um, well, yeah, so we are having a um, panel uh, and it is, let's see, Can Love and Sex Change the World? Uh, movie makers and activists and shakers. Uh, we're going to talk about gay sex and cinema um, featuring local uh, activists and dancers and media makers and comedians. Uh, there's um, uh, an individual from Tasmania and me, and we're going to just answer some questions about um, the current state of affairs and how sex representation, eroticism, queerness um, works in a contemporary this age of marriage. And yes. Awesome stuff. Finn Gray, Paul, thanks for joining us yeah, on In Your Face on 3CR. It's been awesome. Welcome to Australia. I'm glad you're loving the Queer Film Festival. I sense that you are. Yes. Can't wait to see what you work on when you get back to LA uh, and treat us within the cinemas in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. 19 after 4. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here at the Style Council. Style Council, Promised Land, almost 20 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined in the studio by Felicity Marlowe. I've got to congratulate you for being um, put on the Victorian Women's Honour Roll. Thank you, James. What is it? Well, that's a good question. I did look it up when I was nominated. Um, so the Victorian government had for a long time had this process by which on International Women's Day, March the 8th, they've had a sort of public nomination process where people can say, look, these are women, um, trans, queer women as well are included, who have made a contribution to Victoria in some way, shape or form. So it might be medical research, it might be women's footy, it might be queer activism, whatever it was. Um, And it's an open nomination process every year and I do encourage people to get on, have a look at the website because you can nominate. And so I um, had a lovely friend, Subda, who nominated me, which was really fantastic and I got through to the next round, as they say. (laughs) We're about to have a federal election. You're a political animal. 
Um, what are some of the big issues for rainbow families that you would like to see highlighted during this campaign? Look, I think um, one of the really key issues is always just going to be what actually does equality look like nationally for our families. For so long, we've had a patchwork of um, information available to us, our legal rights, a sort of a bit of a patchwork from state to state and territory to territory, access to assisted reproductive treatment, access to altruistic surrogacy. You know, we do now have some synergy across many states about access to things like adoption, about um, who can go on birth certificates. But still federally, we have really big gaps in things that are federally funded, such as um, the way in which um, the Australian education system and some you know states have their own, but the way in which we promote nationally a way to talk about family diversity and gender diversity in our education system. Um, another big issue would be the family law system. So how are our families included in all steps of the family law system through the family court and the circuit court? So how are those mechanisms being inclusive of our families? And we think that there's advocacy to be done on a, on a federal level around those issues um, to start with. You mentioned religious schools. How do you think uh, the community should approach that issue during the election campaign? Should we uh, make it an election issue like some people are saying that we should or should we just kind of, you know, try a moderate approach and wait for a shortened government and then apply the pressure? I think it's absolutely important and imperative for us to keep the pressure on now and not to wait into the wait-and-see approach. I think that's because we had a really full-on experience during the um Ruddock Religious Freedom Review, which came out of the marriage equality debate at the end of 2017. Lots of people with their hearts and minds into thinking about how best to approach it in a really respectful way, being respectful that, um, you know, people are religious, people are from faith and spiritual backgrounds, but people are also um, live in rainbow families. They have relationships with people of the same sex. They're trans, they're gender diverse, they're non-binary, and they are also spiritual or have people of faith. And we can't take that away from a campaign. We need to be able to continually remind people not to silo us into one form of identity or one form of our own self-expression, but to actually be much more inclusive. So the momentum during the end of last year and the beginning of this year with the two Senate inquiries we've had, all of the work people did into telling their stories, we need to honour that. We can't just always be a wait and see. I think it's really important that we put it on the table now for every political party and individual running for government to say it's important that you remember that in our religious and faith-based schools there are LGBTIQ and non-binary students and young people, there are LGBTIQ staff and there are families that work in those schools, that have kids in those schools who want to make sure they're included. So I think if we're going to go down the track of starting to hive off our things saying, oh, it's a bit sensitive to talk about, what we really need to question for ourselves is why aren't we always putting these things to the front? Who gets left behind when we don't continue to push on these issues? And I think uh, it's a respectful debate, but I think it's a debate we continually need to have. You mentioned there's been two inquiries on this issue. That seems to be a bit of a pattern for this government, doesn't it? Kicking the can on LGBTIQ issues down the road a bit further, having an inquiry, you know, having a plebiscite, having a postal vote, whatever. It's a pattern, don't you think? Absolutely. I think this was the third summer that um, Rainbow Families Victoria and other advocacy groups had had to put aside time to um, write submissions for an inquiry. This, um, The first one being the marriage equality. There's a marriage amendment 
Act inquiry at the end of 2016. Then we had the Ruddock Review one over 2017 and 18. And then a second Senate inquiry into the Sex Discrimination Act over this last previous summer. So we were a bit weary of um, that kind of review. But I guess in some ways it's also a good rallying point for diverse voices. Um, One of the things I think I'm most proud of is the work that people did to rally um, principals from faith-based schools around this issue of religious freedom and our children, LGBTI children in their faith-based and spiritual schools. And I think it was really important that sometimes you need something like an inquiry to give people a chance to question their current practice and also to profile and talk proudly about how they do support trans and gender diverse kids in religious schools, how some Catholic schools have actually stepped aside and said, we do need to make sure that kids can wear the right uniform that just, that um, gives them that uh, ability to, to stand up and say, this is who I am. So I think it's a mixed blessing sometimes an inquiry. I really would not like to have another one over my summer holidays, though, at the end of this year as a word to any incoming government. <laughs> I know you may not be able to mention names, but um, obviously you're an activist that's out and about. You've got lots of good contacts. Uh, are any coalition MPs reaching out to Rainbow Families, you know, since there's been these two Senate inquiries and, you know, all the hoo-ha over religious freedom in schools? Um, are there any coalition MPs who have basically just said to you, look, we're here for you? I can't say my inbox is overflowing with um, requests to (laughs) come and chat. (laughs) But look, it isn't to say that those things are important. And I guess that's a conversation some of us in different advocacy circles are starting to have as we sort of get six to eight weeks away from what will hopefully be the federal election in May. Um, And part of that is reaching out to all areas of I always, people always say sides and it feels like there's only both sides, mm. but there's so many independents and there's the Australian Greens, there's a lot of other people in the in the field, I guess, um, but reaching out and saying this is the chance to say let's have a conversation so that you're aware of what we'll be asking for, what we'll be lobbying for and, and should you be elected, what we'll be advocating for. Um, I always think one of the things about the federal election is that we're represented by um, 12 senators in Victoria. So regardless of where you live, even if it's a a solid liberal, solid solid national, solid ALP seat, um, you can still have a say with your senators. That's the House of Review. It's the upper house federally. So your senators, are wherever their office is, they still represent you. So I guess I think it's really important for all of us to think about having a good chat to senators um, because it doesn't matter where you live and you can still talk to a wide variety of them, I guess. Um, And I guess pick one that's up for re-election this time around. Well, there's six up for for re-election. But, you know, I think it's still still very worth saying if you're going to have the balance of power, this is what we'd like you to consider and we're going to campaign on this. So those, they do listen to those messages and I think it's important to get out there and have a chat to them if you can. What about LGBTIQ candidates, perhaps not from the, the coalition? Have any of them reached out to Rainbow Families? Uh, it looks like we're going to have an, imp- an unprecedented number of queer candidates at this federal election. Oh, you've been doing the numbers, James. I haven't actually paid much attention to who's who yet. Um, look, Again, no one in particular. Um, I would be fair to say that we had an event um, a few weeks ago where we launched a book that was authored by one of the stars of the Gaby Baby movie and by Maya and Charlotte, who are the producers of and the directors of the Maybe Maybe Gaby Baby movie. Did I say Maybe Baby? I meant Gaby Baby. Is that it's right? so cute. Or is it the Gabies? Oh, I forget what it's called now. Anyway, 
that movie about children who have queer parents. Um, they launched a book called Wrestle and that was at Hares and Hyenas and Jason Ball came and he's um, the Australian Greens candidate for the seat of Higgins, which has been vacated by the incumbent Liberal Kelly O'Dwyer. So it's an opportunity for him really, isn't so, it? So look, I mean- it was really great. He came and he read the book to the kids and other people that were there and I think that is a is showing that, you know, Rainbow families are still we're a voting population and if anything we're breeding the next lot of voters so <laughs> probably we are good people to come and talk to for sure. You went to a launch uh, very recently of a great intersex resource launched by uh, Martin Foley, the uh, minister for us here in Victoria. Tell us about that resource. Yeah, look, this has been a fantastic piece of work that's been put together by the Intersex Working Group as part of the LGBTIQ task force of the Victorian government. So just yesterday they launched a booklet um, really highlighting the health and well-being of people with intersex variations and it was a launch at Parliament House and there were two fantastic speakers, Tracy and Eloise, who both have um, intersex variations and who talked a little bit about their personal experiences, one um, as someone who is an elder and someone else who is who is younger. Um, and I guess it was just a really good thing to highlight that in Victoria we still have infants at the Royal Children's Hospital who are operated on um, because their gender is seen as their, their genitalia is seen as atypical and that is still what we what the intersex community would be saying is a form of, of mutilation and that given that's a hospital that also is so supportive of our trans and gender diverse young people it's a bit of an anomaly so you know with all the goodwill in the world people are opening up to having these conversations um, and I was really impressed I think by particularly Tracy, who spoke as the intersex elder yesterday, saying, you know, and there were people from the Royal Children's Hospital in the room, just to say this is a really good opportunity to have these conversations. Let's let's think about what we're doing here and how can we talk about consent and how can we inform the communities more broadly about the impact of non-consensual surgery on these infants. So there were two other things introduced yesterday, both as handouts for families, um, really just giving some quite gentle but specific information about what to do when your baby is born with atypical genitalia and what support is out there for you. So they're all available on the health um, Victorian Government Health website and I really urge people to have a look at those if you work in that sector or if you just want to be informed as, as family members or as members of the community. There is some debate about whether or not uh, that surgery should be included in any legislation to ban conversion therapy in Victoria. What's your kind of view on that issue? Look, I think that's a really interesting conversation that sometimes gets left out um, of the discussion. And I mean, conversion therapy for the people that have been um, subjected to it has been horrific. And the stories that I've heard and there's further reports that have been out just late last year show it for what it is, that it is um, coercive and it's against, and, you know, against people's human rights and it's detrimental to people's mental health and it's incredibly traumatic. Um, but I think that personally, like there are so many examples of members of the LGBTIQ and non-binary communities having personal impact and trauma from uninformed, misunderstood and non-consensual um, actions upon them whether it's conversion therapy, whether it's the treatment that children are receiving in infants when they're born um, with an intersex variation, um, the way in which, you know, it's hard to change your birth certificates in Victoria unless you've had certain levels of medical intervention as a trans or gender diverse person. And that is all where the intersection of the legal frameworks and medical frameworks 
work with our own body integrity as a sense of, you know, in terms of across our communities. So, look, it's not the only – conversion therapy is one of those. Um, so I think it's a wider conversation, but it was clear yesterday that people were quite – um, willing to say this is a difficult conversation, but you've got to start having it to, to Minister Foley. So it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out. To what extent are you concerned that opponents of the LGBTIQ community will use the conversion therapy debate to focus on gender identity and saying, well, hey, therapy around uh, counselling for gender diverse folks, hey, that's conversion therapy as well, and they'll try and wedge the LGBTIQ community on that. Are you concerned about that? I think that's a really interesting sort of way to reframe it in a way I think reflect on on what this conversation will lead to. But I think even without a conversation on conver- conversion therapy, we already know that trans and gender diverse communities are always going to be the target under this kind of wave of um, the, of politicians and commentators who have really taken against our trans gender diverse communities for, against our children, older trans and gender diverse people, um, in all under this guise of a war against gender fluidity or a rise in what they call gender ideology. And it's come from the States. It's being played out. We see if you look at some of the awful stuff that's happened in the UK um, in the last couple of months. And then you can see it also, for example, Mark Latham, a candidate for One Nation in the New South Wales election, very, very strong um, opponent to allowing trans and gender diverse young people to be themselves and anyone who supports them really doesn't like them either. Um, and so he's been saying some incredibly transphobic things as part of his campaign. So we don't need a conversation of conversion therapy to suddenly have people talking about trans and gender diverse rights because we already knew that that element of our LGBTIQ communities are at the forefront and that's who they're coming for. And I think it would be really interesting for people who are keen to see what might be played out in the future to look at what's happening in Tasmania as well. They're debating their changes to um, birth certificates in a couple of weeks. I think it's going to the Upper House on the 3rd of April. And just this week, the Catholic Church with um, a group of women um, who are trans-exclusionary and um, I think maybe the Catholic Women's League have started a coalition for children's rights that is anti-trans and anti-gender diversity. Um, And that's just a really dangerous trend to see. They put a full-page ad in the local paper in Tassie. So for anyone who's really keen to see, to get an inkling of just what is going to start perhaps to roll out in the federal election, I'd, I'd say have a look at what's happening in Tasmania and look at the trans family activism that's going on down there. Felicity Mallow, thanks for coming into the studio. Congratulations on your appointment to the Victorian Women's Honour Roll. We will have to get you back when the election campaign really heats up. Thanks heaps for joining me today on 3CR. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
19 to 5, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James, Sinead O'Connor there, Mandika. Well, Jill Faulkner is the coordinator of programs at Drummond Street responding to women and LGBTIQ people who have used violence. Jill, welcome back to In Your Face. Thank you. Hi, James. Hello, hello. So tell us about the specific programs that Drummond Street offers women and LGBTIQ folks who have used violence. Sure. So uh, we're engaged in um, two trials. There are interventions that really have come out of a, a request that an inquiry to know more about the context of violence, both for women in heterosexual relationships and for um, LGBTIQ folks um, who have been using interpersonal violence. And so these trials are a year long. So we're engaged in one that's been funded by the Department of Justice. Um, And so that has us working with all women, trans-inclusive, in Dane Phyllis Frost Centre, where we're running a group for these women who have used force or um, interpersonal violence in their relationships. Um, And we also work therapeutically with them on a one-to-one basis. And in that particular context, we're into our second group. Um, They're 20-session groups, so they're quite significant. Um, And then we also have a similar program, which is funded by Family Safety Victoria, Um, and that works. That's for us to uh, work alongside all women um, in heterosexual relationships who've used force um, or interpersonal violence in their relationships, and also to work with um, trans and gender diverse people who've used interpersonal violence in their relationships. So our particular model um, is located um, in a framework where we're very interested in social justice, um, transformative justice, Um, experiential learning processes and coming from a position where um, of course we're informed by the feminist gendered framework which has really been the dominant paradigm for exploring family violence um, in heteronormative relationships um, in the family violence sector for many many years and quite rightly so it's given us a framework for understanding uh, the enactment of men's uh, violence and coercive control primarily over women in relationships. And so that's, you know, that's uh, a beginning point for us. But we're working from a, an intersectional analysis where we understand that gender is not the only way that power is taken up and enacted in relationships. So, you know, we're interested in how power and privilege um, and hierarchies um Ideas that someone will be submissive, um, ideas of objectification of the other, um, and that often where there's a lack of consequence for the use of violence, shape particular um, relational dynamics and use of violence. So that still frames our work, but I think particularly in the community, um, we have um, learned off some learnings from New Zealand, from Waikato, uh, where in responding to high-risk um, episodes of family violence, they use something called an integrated service response. And so I guess this is kind of an extension of what uh, men's behaviour change programs would call partner contact. So we're able to work with those who've both enacted harm 
and also those who've been harmed within the relationship, which might be part, a partner or ex-partners or it may well be children. Um, and so we're able to work in a way where uh, we also have a lead practitioner. So we're interested and um, we have multiple eyes on risk and safety, um, the fluidity and the movement of risk and safety in relationships um, so that we can start to uh, ensure that risk is really monitored and that we're able to be responsive to those who've been most harmed. And then, of course, we have our groups. What do your experiences as a long-time therapy coordinator tell you about the links between internalised homophobia and the use of violence in the LGBTIQ community? Yeah, I think that's a tricky question because I think this is very new uh, work for the LGBTI community and it's, I don't think it's new work for the community. I think there have been community responses to enactments of violence or harm in the community for some time, but I think this is the first time that we've located these responses in the service system, you know, and certainly it's, it's taken time for um, the community to be able to build trust and we're really interested in the process of engagement and building trust. Um, I work along six really esteemed colleagues who also represent and are part of the community. So, you know, I think this is very new work. You know, I would be very hesitant to speak about any particular drivers. But, of course, what we also know, when people are othered in particular ways, of course, they're then subjected not just to interpersonal violence but to systemic violence and oppression. You know, and that, you know, there are direct relationships in terms of those experiences of violence and abuse. It wasn't that long ago that many service providers saw providing, you know, services and programs for people who have used violence as a taboo topic, as something to keep away from. What do you think has inspired a shift away from um, people being so hardcore about that view? Um, You know, I think that, you know, like coming off the backs of a very strong feminist movement, you know, that was really, uh, you know, like, established to respond to men's violence against women. You know, I think that paved the way for a lot of kind of overting of violence, that moving it from the private to the public space. Um, you know, it's certainly it's a global it's a global kind of issue. It's not something that's located in particular spaces um, or particular communities or particular cultures. It's taken up more globally. And so I think, you know, that's you know, we've been working um, in the, you know, with a feminist gender framework for many, many years, you know, I think at least 30 or 40 years, you know, so I think that really paved the way. I think it is new and I think it is potentially risky for those um, who sit outside, you know, uh, the dominant the dominant communities to then start to explore issues of violence within communities. And I think, you know, if we look at, um, you know, certainly, you know, like our experiences of working in Aboriginal communities, which have, you know, come from a very uh, Western-dominated framework and paradigm, and I think that often that has done more harm, um, particularly to communities. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's not surprising that the 
The greatest uh, increase in incarceration more recently by 400% is Aboriginal women. We have more, you know, uh, Aboriginal men being incarcerated. We have more children being removed from families. So I think, you know, it's, whilst there's been a permission to talk about violence, I think if you are from a community that's been subjected to oppression um, and other kind of systemic enactments of abuse and violence, it is risky. And so I think it's very tentatively that we step into this space, you know, and that I think, well, certainly what I've learned from working alongside Aboriginal communities is that we don't know and that sometimes we assume uh, commonalities without understanding structural oppression and violence and what that means for particular people. The marriage debate, of course, pushed a lot of these issues under the table, under the carpet. The community was scared to, to talk about things like you know, intimate partner violence, for example. That seems to be changing now, and it seems like it must be an incredibly inspiring time to work in queer service provision. Do you feel like the community is thriving since this debate? Um, I think, you know, that's a very interesting question, and certainly that debate created visibility and... Uh, it created opportunities particularly for lesbian women and gay men, but nonetheless, we still, you know, have got trans and gender diverse people who sit outside the equality vote. So, you know, in many ways, one could consider that, you know, it's, it's been divisory, really. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't brought um, equality for all people. So, you know, I think... I think it's a new space for all of us um, and I also think, um, you know, that we should walk with care alongside the community. I think that uh, we need to be led by the community. I think that, um, you know, we have to be careful about, uh, as a service system, assuming that we know the answers and that we know uh, what that's about. And I think that... Um, you know, structurally, we have to look at um, how do we create space to build the understanding, to start to understand the complexity of relationships and how uh, how power and abuse is enacted, um, and then the effects of institutional violence and abuse, systemic violence and abuse. Drummond Street seems to be at the forefront of dealing with all of these issues that were pushed down. It seems to just be able to reach down, pull them out and 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 be at the forefront of LGBTIQ service provision and and kind of, you know, interpersonal activism almost. Like why do you think that is? Why is why is Drummond Street at the helm of dealing with so many issues that were once controversial but now the community's crying out for assistance with? I think that Drummond Street um, has worked very collaboratively with other uh, queer services um, and I think that Drummond Street is uh, finding ways to work alongside community to hear the voice of the community and to be responsive to the community. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, Drummond Street, you know, has certainly been providing services for the community Um and, uh, you know, I think the With Respect that was launched last year was a collaborative with, um, you know, other queer community organisations. And so I think that this is sort of paving the way for us to be more attuned and responsive um, to the issues that community have been grappling with. 
So tell us about With Respect. What does it involve? Um, With Respect is a collaboration uh, with Drummond Street as the lead organisation um, involving queer space. Um, in Drummond Street, uh, Thorn Harbour House, Transgender Victoria and Switchboard. Um, and it's really a portal for LGBTIQ communities who are responding to violence um, to be able to access services, information, um, and to find their way uh, to, you know, into support. What would you say to people who do, you know, want to access support for violence, either being a perpetrator or being a survivor of it, but are feeling a bit hesitant? What do you say to people to try and, you know, encourage them to walk through the door or pick up the phone or send that email? Um, well, if, um, you know, in terms of, you know, I can speak really in terms of uh, Futures Free From Violence, which is our community program, um, which, you know, it's a, a no-cost program. And what I'd say is that if you ring Drummond Street on 9663-6733 and uh, ask to speak to either myself or Annalise Arfat, who's the lead practitioner in the program, we'd be very happy to have a conversation. We're very happy to meet off-site. Um, you know, we, we're very happy to talk through some of the worries and the concerns. Um, you know, we're much more invested in, you know, like a relationship with um, individuals within the community that will be sustainable and able to support them um, to be able to, uh, you know, move towards um, relationships that are ex- equitable, um, that centre safety and really are transformative. Jill Faulkner, it's always great to chat with you on In Your Face. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon and thank you so much for your amazing work at Drummond Street. My pleasure. Thanks, James. The wonderful Jill Faulkner there from Drummond Street. It is almost five to five. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with the Friday Rave, but taking us out is garbage and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.